The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Good morning, everyone. This is Dr. Alan Fine, the podcast editor of the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. And as a clinically focused journal, we have a wonderful broadcast in store for you. All of us have been either doing or referring patients for interventional pulmonology, particularly when there are central airway problems, but also in many other cases, usually involving, but not always, with lung cancer. And today we have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. David Ost, professor of medicine at the University of Texas at the MD Anderson Cancer Center, and an old friend and colleague of mine about a paper and an editorial that Dr. Rost wrote with Dr. Daniel Stearman on interventional bronchoscopy in 2015, removing endoluminal and methodologic obstructions. So I wanted to ask David, by the way, good morning. I wanted to ask David to give us an overview of where he thinks interventional pulmonology is, particularly with respect to lung cancer treatment, and I'd like them to comment on not only the technology, but the field in general. And I wanted also to ask him what he believes the state of evidence is of the impact of uh, pulmonary interventions in lung cancer treatment. Oh, good morning, Alan. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. It's my first podcast with you. I think the question of the role of interventional pulmonary medicine in lung cancer is an evolving one. Uh, it's certainly come a long way, and really it varies based on the technique being used, whether it's diagnostic or therapeutic, and the types of techniques within each category. Certainly, I would say the single largest advance in interventional pulmonary medicine in diagnostics has been endobronchial ultrasound for lung cancer diagnosis and staging. In the most recent lung cancer guidelines, based on a very large body of evidence, EBUS finally supplanted mediastinoscopy as the first method for mediastinal sampling in lung cancer evaluation. I think that was a pivotal moment for interventional pulmonary, bringing to fruition really several decades worth of work and showing the value proposition in the discipline. Other areas within the diagnostic realm would be electromagnetic navigation and guidance for peripheral nodules, radial EBUS, again, for peripheral nodules and similar techniques. Under therapeutic bronchoscopy, this particular paper by Meta and colleagues really addresses one of the common therapeutic problems related to cancer, which is malignant central airway obstruction. And in that realm, the clinical evidence base has been more difficult to develop, primarily because these are all palliative procedures and they don't lend themselves well to randomization. But having said that, there are a variety of tools and techniques to uh, addressing these clinical issues. This is one of them, the injection of chemotherapeutic agents using, in this case, a Wang needle, a 19-gauge Wang needle, to treat endobronchial obstructions. So 
you know, as you can see, it's a very wide and diverse field. The rubric of interventional pulmonary medicine is usually thought of procedurally, you know, so we think of stents or we think of lasers. But really, I would say the new paradigm is to say, let's think of clinical problems that patients have and then think of the interventions because the same intervention, whether it's laser or stenting, the risk-benefit ratio, the complications, the risk factors really all vary by context. So what you see now is a more refined clinical discipline where articles focus on one clinical problem and the role of a particular intervention, and you try to gain insights for that clinical problem. If you use the same instrument in a different context, you need a different study. So it's an exciting time to be an interventional pulmonologist, and I would encourage fellows to consider it if they have an interest in clinical investigation. So you mentioned uh, Dr. Maida's paper, and this is a paper from the University of Florida, and this is a paper will be published this month, and it's entitled Treatment of Malignant Airway Obstruction with Intraluminal Injection of Chemotherapy with Cisplatin. Can you tell us a little bit about the paper? And since we're talking about context, try to put it in context. Is this a hypothesis generating paper? Do you think this technique should supplant what is being done now? Uh, where do you see this technique, and is this really an advance? Well, I think your point is, a, is an excellent one, Alan. The idea is context, and where does it fit in with a wide array of other techniques? Well, within that context, for malignant central airway obstruction, there are a wide variety of other tools which make up the clinical context and choices that an interventional pulmonologist has. And the array of tools that I'm talking about fit under the category of what I will call ablative techniques, things which destroy tissue. So that includes thermal lasers, such as the YAG laser or the YAP laser. It includes things like electrocautery and argon plasma coagulation, as well as mechanical techniques, such as coring out and the microdebrider and other things like photodynamic therapy and even brachytherapy. Now, the challenge in this arena is we categorize our malignant central airway obstructions as either endobronchial, meaning a like a fungating polyp, or extrinsic compression, where the tumor is compressing from the outside in, but it's not actually in the airway. But of course, there's a broad middle ground where you have mixed disease. When you have mixed disease, it can be sometimes difficult. There are a variety of problems physicians face, but really, this technique falls into the category of dealing with endoluminal disease of some degree, meaning either mixed or pure endoluminal. The challenge here is developing the evidence base. Does this supplant everything else? Does it replace it? Well, probably not. Does it supplement it? And is it, if so, when should one technique be used or not used? Which factors favor one technique over another? That's really what we need to develop in the evidence base in the future. What this paper does is it's really just a feasibility study. That's not a bad thing. You have to have feasibility studies to show at the outset, yes, this technique can be done. There is some proof of principle that at least you have a tissue response. It can be delivered via the 19-gauge Wang needle. And you go from there after those feasibility studies to develop where this instrument would fit 
in the clinical context. So Dr. Maida and colleagues have addressed this feasibility issue quite nicely in this journal's article. And to be fair, there have been prior uh, publications in this field, really small case series, looking at the use of endoluminal injection of cisplatinum chemotherapy. Now, the key things I would highlight to your audience when they approach this paper is that, one, it is a feasibility study. It's um, based on previously published literature, but they are looking at a review of medical records of patients who had this done when the investigators thought other bronchoscopic interventions would not be likely to succeed. The clinical context is important because that frequently gets overlooked in these types of case series. Which patients are included and which patients are not is a key factor in determining success. Just as in surgery, often the single biggest factor is deciding when to do it, who gets it done. In this particular series, they injected 40 milligrams of cisplatinum with the Wang needle once a week for a maximum of up to four sessions. During each session, when they injected 40 milligrams, they used the needle to inject the tumor directly in the airways in a fan-like pattern and then reassessed for airway stenosis. And they classified it as a percentage of obstruction of less than 50, 50 to 75, and greater than 75. All assessments were visual assessments. And then after the procedure, they reassessed the percentage of obstruction and they defined a response as a greater than 50% relative reduction in the obstruction. So a pretty standard approach comparable to that of other case series when they have assessed other technologies. And what they found then was a pretty good response rate. In this particular article, similar to what you might see with YAG laser or YAP laser or argon plasma, the majority of the patients 71% responded to therapy. Now, people could say that a higher percentage respond to YAG laser, YAP laser, but you can't really draw those comparisons directly, one, because it's not randomized, and two, because these patients were selected out based on the fact that their clinicians viewed their likelihood of response to traditional therapies as being low. So you can't draw one-to-one correlations and just compare straight numbers. And that's an important point. It just shows feasibility of the technique. So, But that was a fair response, and they did not have a lot of complications in this study. Most of their patients had more than one treatment, with the majority of patients having um, three or more. In addition, they did use other techniques in conjunction with this technique, not in all of the patients, but some of the patients had either argon plasma coagulation, some had debulking, and some had stents. So seven had argon plasma with debulking, and another seven had the combination argon plasma debulking as well as stents. And that approach, a multimodality approach, where you use multiple instruments, is really the current standard of care. Where you would pick one over another and which one you do first is really an area where we don't have a lot of evidence, and it's really expert opinion based on the paradigm of certain techniques are ablative, and you use those to destroy what I'll call endobronchial or intraluminal tumor. And then whatever residual disease, which is extrinsic, you then consider whether or not you should use stenting at the end of that. 
after the ablation of intraluminal tumor. That's where the evidence basis is currently. This article by Meta and colleagues adds to that evidence base for a relatively new technique of endoluminal injection of chemotherapy for which we don't have a lot of case series data. But it's also important to recognize that all we really have is case series, which I would call, you know, the feasibility level. And then we do have some large prospective cohort studies, but we don't have any randomized uh, comparative trials going forward to shed insight other than what we have already, which is expert opinion. Let me ask you, is there an evidence base, and this is something that always comes up in my mind, is there an evidence base for an intervention like the one that Meta did or a multimodality intervention affecting the overall outcome of the patient? Do we expect, in addition to merely dealing with an acute airway obstruction for the patient to live longer, live better, do we have any of that evidence? Because the pushback on interventional pulmonology is that it's really a very temporary palliative intervention. Yeah, the answer is we do have an evidence base, but it's not level 1A. We don't have randomized controlled trials showing effects. We do have both retrospective and prospective cohort studies showing improvements in dyspnea and quality-adjusted survival, which is a new thing. In the area of dyspnea, some of the older studies didn't quantify it with what I'll call accepted dyspnea scales, but most of the more recent studies do use scales like the Borg Index. Not all patients have an improvement in dyspnea, and in part, that depends on the strategy that's used. So you can imagine a patient who has extreme dyspnea and impending respiratory failure with a left main stem obstruction. That patient is likely to have an improvement in dyspnea. But often you will detect a large endoluminal tumor And surprisingly, the patient is not yet that dyspneic. Actually, ideally, that's what you want when someone is just on the verge of becoming clinically symptomatic, but the lesion is still amenable to intervention at low risk. That's kind of ideal from my perspective. But that patient, when you treat just at the prior to them becoming dyspneic, of course, does not have as much change quantifiable change as the first patient. But having said that, the evidence base, and there is a registry study in the acquired database in CHESS looking at that, does show that patients do have improvements in dyspnea. Not all patients do. Those who have more dyspnea at baseline who are generally higher risk actually get the highest degree of benefit. And then the other question is quality of life. Certainly dyspnea in and of itself impacts quality of life, but how much benefit do you get in terms of palliation and how much risk would you be willing to take for that benefit? It's tough to quantify because you're trading one thing, dyspnea, a very qualitative thing, for another thing, which is risk of death during the procedure. And of course, there's the cost-effectiveness issue. I actually think the cost of it is really not an issue. Compared to chemotherapy and the other interventions, it's negligible, that the cost is. And if you can keep them out of the hospital even two days, you're saving the patient money. So the cost issue is less of an issue, but that risk-benefit issue is a biggie. And when we talk about quality of life, there are several instruments that you can use, many instruments, things like the FACT-L, which is for lung cancer. You could use St. George's, which is traditionally has been used for COPD. But the important thing about these instruments is that they don't get you necessarily to the quality-adjusted survival, what I will call the utilities 
scale and we talk about quality adjusted survival, just consider a graph with time on the horizontal axis and quality of life on the vertical axis. And that quality can range from zero, being dead, all the way to a maximum value of one, which is standard healthy life, hopefully that you and I are living right now. If you take the area under that curve for a given patient, that's their quality adjusted life years. So it's a real simple concept, but most quality of life scales cannot get to that utility score, the zero to one. So that is an important thing because once you can get to that scale, you can make an estimate as to how much your palliation is helping the patient and how much risk you would therefore be willing to accept. Otherwise, how much risk would I accept to walk 30 more meters on a six-minute walk? I don't know. But with this, we can get a better sense of it. And I think that's where we have to work on the evidence base. What we're missing is long-term quality-adjusted survival demonstrations. And by that, I mean forget about randomized control trials. We don't even have prospective cohort studies looking at that over the long term. You know, a randomized trial would be tougher, but right now I, I would settle for prospective cohort studies to describe the benefits. Having said that, there is a good body of evidence that comparing patients pre and post, there is a benefit to therapeutic bronchoscopy in selected patients. I'm not sure you could withhold treatment, but certainly you could compare alternatives like Dr. Maida's technique of intratumoral chemotherapy versus alternatives in an algorithmic approach where people could cross over, but that would be another level, a higher level of evidence, and you'd have to have the outcomes in place so that you could demonstrate difference. So we still have a long ways to go. That's just one vision of future investigation, and that vision for it to become a reality really requires a lot of collaboration between centers because, as you can see, this study took a long time to accrue patients, as do all of these studies. This study took five years to accrue 22 patients. And at that rate, you know, we really need to collaborate to build our evidence base in the future. Well, I just wanted, uh, as we wrap up, to ask you, David, about what you think is on the horizon, both technologically and organizationally. I think one of the issues in terms of referral is that the availability of expert interventionalists is kind of patchy or spotty. Some areas, it seems like there are multiple centers with a high level of expertise, and you go 100 miles and there are none. So tell me what you think is going to happen organizationally, and what technology can we expect to see in the maybe not so near future? I think it's a very interesting question. First, I'll address the organizational and healthcare delivery aspects, and then the aspects of technology development, because I think, in a way, one causes the other, but it's reciprocal. So technology development drives the development of the discipline, but the development of the discipline and the evidence base also drives technology development. Um, Your question of healthcare delivery and the patchiness of the delivery of interventional pulmonary services is a good one, and I would say it's accurate that some areas you have an abundance and others scarcity. But I would say actually that's typical of medicine in general, that in some areas of the country you have an overabundance of supply of what I'll call labor 
physician health care services, and others are scarce. And that's really a function of restricted markets and other economic factors, as well as, I don't want to say price fixing, but the pricing system introduced by uh, Medicare, which drives the other systems. But what can we as physicians do, and how does that affect interventional pulmonary? One of the reasons for the patchiness is that the reimbursement for the procedures and the skills is low, such that you really have difficulty finding an economically sustainable pattern for interventional pulmonary services in, say, a private practice setting. You almost have to be in a very large referral center, and that referral center has to be committed to certain disease processes, such as lung cancer for MD Anderson, where they are willing to commit the capital to support physicians. Because these diseases aren't that common, say, in a smaller or even larger community hospital. Or you can imagine a very large community or even tertiary center, but their focus is on cardiac disease and they've chosen a strategic focus, and therefore interventional pulmonary isn't going to be part of that plan. So that really explains a lot of the variability in the availability of interventional pulmonary services. The second aspect of that is getting people trained so that there is what I would call a high-quality population of providers, and that population has to be well-trained so that they can then advance the discipline in the future. Traditionally, we've had some outstanding proceduralists, and they have formed the foundation of interventional pulmonary as we know it today. But I think the future is maintaining what we have in the past, but also taking the responsibility to make it better in the future. And by that, I mean building a better evidence base so that we can answer some of the questions that have been raised. There are now interventional pulmonary fellowships available. My forget how many. Now there's some maybe 20 and they're one year. But I think the real emphasis here has to be giving interventional pulmonary fellows and physicians, self-trained, the actual clinical epidemiology skill sets to conduct high-quality, feasible clinical research. And that requires teamwork, collaboration, because as we've just pointed out, not all centers can do these procedures, and the frequency of the problem is such that for some problems, like central airway obstruction, there are not that many patients that need an intervention that you can easily do research in a single center. For other problems in an interventional pulmonary, which are more common, for example, lymph node staging for EBUS or malignant pleural effusions, then it's much more feasible to drive the field forward, and that's really the people aspect you know, the high-quality training and the training in clinical epidemiology. And then there's the organizational, the economics, and also the collaboration. Collaboration takes time and money. It's not just snapping your fingers. But with the Internet, it's much cheaper than it used to be. Then comes the technology. And really, they go hand-in-hand. Hand. With new technological innovation like EBUS for lymph node staging, it can really propel the field forward by answering the need for accurate non-invasive lung cancer staging in this case and providing a good tool for that. Uh, because without EBUS, I think the interventional pulmonary field wouldn't have moved ahead as fast as it has. As we move forward into the future then, what technological developments will drive the field? Well, EBUS and mediastinal staging, really I would put under the category of a maturing discipline, but there's still work to be done 
in improved lung cancer staging and defining what constitutes a systematic EBUS mediastinal sampling. We have an algorithm which says you move from the contralateral side to the ipsilateral side, sampling everything five millimeters or larger. But you know, that's not evidence-based. There is a lot of evidence which has used that algorithm, but we haven't compared it to other algorithms. I think it's a good one, but certainly it's open for testing, and it should be tested. That's the nature of science. It's a competitive market, the free market of ideas, with the evidence being the selection method for what gets done. But then for other clinical problems in the interventional pulmonary arena, we really will need to innovate and collaborate, innovate to develop, collaborate to test those ideas. So for Dr. Maida's paper on malignant central airway obstruction, that might be a future area of investigation for this particular intervention, meaning injection of cisplatinum at perhaps that dose, perhaps a different dose. And what would be the comparator? Well, it would have to be other algorithms. And as we use these instruments, it's really sets of instruments used in a systematic manner. That type of what I'll call randomized trial of different algorithms does offer potential benefit, but it is very difficult and costly to do, meaning all the centers have to have the same tools available. They all have to have similarly trained individuals, and the outcomes, of course, have to be standardized across institutions. But you can imagine that might be a future area of investigation. I think the other area of future development is really driven by clinical need. What do patients need rather than what does the discipline need? And that's why EBUS for lymph node staging was so successful. There was a patient and clinical need. Well, In pulmonary, I think where we have the opportunity to help is diagnosis actually of peripheral lung nodules. You know, CT guided biopsy in my institution is outstanding. It's at MD Anderson. But much like interventional pulmonary, it's patchy across the country. You know, you go to some centers, it's not too good, and it does have risk of pneumothorax. A less invasive way to do that, which was truly effective, might work, but you need the evidence base. Currently, electromagnetic navigation and guidance doesn't have that evidence base. They don't have one randomized trial comparing that with standard bronchoscopy, assessing the magnitude of the benefit of the technique. Just compared to the standard of care is absent, and that probably needs to be done. What will be the magnitude of the benefit, if any? Tough to predict, but certainly worth doing. And more importantly, once you quantify the benefit, you can improve on the technology, make it better. Make the software easier to use is great. That makes it better for the physician. But improving the diagnostic yield is what the patient needs. And that's where the next generation, I think, really has to focus. In my mind, things like electromagnetic navigation are kind of like radial EBUS back in the early 90s. You know, you had radial EBUS for lymph node staging, but you had to deflate the balloon and take it out and then do conventional TBNA. That was like a, v- a version 1.0 of EBUS. It wasn't until the convex EBUS came out where you could get real-time guidance that you had a big jump up in patient care and quality of care. Well, I think we're at version 1.0 of electromagnetic navigation. I think it can be improved in the future. Ongoing work will be needed. And importantly, it has to be high-quality, evidence-based work, which we're on our way to developing, but we still have a long way to go. Well, David, I think this was a wonderful discussion. It put 
the injection of cisplatinum in context, and I think we have to uh, salute Dr. Maida and colleagues for their efforts of bringing this forward as a viable technique. And I think you did a great job describing and putting interventional diagnostic and therapeutic techniques in context. So I want to thank Dr. Rost from the University of Texas and wishing you a great rest of your day. This is Dr. Alan Fine, podcast editor of the Annals of the American Thoracic Society.